this, you know, Josh Hickman, who is Tim's son, and uh, Josh and I have, many of you know him, uh, Josh and I have worked together off and on for several years, you know, around places, led, co-led worship and things of that nature, and um, he, he can tell you a lot more about himself than I can, you know, not that I can't tell, I, I know him pretty good, but I'll let him do that, so go ahead and come on up. Mic check. It's on. Hi, good morning. I wanted to say thank you to uh, Phil and Tammy for uh, inviting me out to uh, teach this morning. Uh, like Phil said, my name is Joshua. Uh, I'm Tim Hickman's son. I'm actually his oldest son. If you couldn't tell, I look exactly like him. So, <laughs> missing the hair and all. So. The only difference is I, I was okay like you to just let go of it. He's still holding on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but thank you all very much. Hey, during worship, I, um, I kind of had a picture. You know, when the Lord speaks to us, a lot of times he speaks in, into our imagination, right? Uh, he'll give us pictures or give us thoughts and, or just an, like a feeling, an impression, right? And so I had a picture of us praying for Phil and Tammy, and I just, I'm just overwhelmed with the Father's love for you guys, and what you guys are doing, I know what you guys are doing here is really awesome, all right, and the Lord is growing it. I haven't been back here in a long time, and I see growth. There's a lot of growth. You guys are in the thick of it, right, and so you may not always see growth, and I feel like this is really for you, Tammy, like, you're doing a great job, and that's what the Father's telling you this morning. He's so proud of you, right? You're harder on yourself than he's harder on you. So, <laughs> and I know we don't know each other very well, but I just wanted, if, if you feel comfortable laying your hands on Phil and Tammy, please do so. Otherwise, just extend a hand, and um, Alyssa, could you come? Yeah, and I just want to pray for you all. And right before we pray, I want to I want to clarify something. I feel like the Lord wants to bless them, right? And biblically, blessing is a spiritual impartation of power to achieve something. When God created man, he blessed them and said, "Take dominion," right? He filled them with everything capable to do what he said do, right? And I feel like the Lord is blessing y'all. He's imparting y'all with um Natural resources, but also the confidence to do everything that is in your heart to do. All right? And it's okay. It's okay to pursue the things that are in your heart to do. Because the Lord is pleased with those things. So, Father, we just release blessing in your name to Phil and Tammy. To their whole household. From their oldest to their youngest. And for those to come. Thank you, Lord. You've made them a mother and a father to many people. We just release blessing in Jesus' name. I ask that you stir up a boldness and a confidence in your name to achieve everything that's in their heart to achieve for your kingdom, Father. 
Yeah. If you agree with that, say amen. I really love you guys. Thank you so much. Um, so, again, some of you all don't know me. Uh, Alyssa, that beautiful redhead right there, she's my wife. Um, I told her I wouldn't embarrass her too much. Actually, I said not at all, but I already embarrassed her. So, um, We've been married for 11 years, coming up to 12 in next May. Um, thank you. And we have four kids. Our oldest is 11. She just turned 11. And um, she's already acting like she's 16. So it's so obnoxious. <laughs> uh, and then our youngest is six. Um, we have three girls and one boy. Our youngest is a boy. And uh, um, Alyssa, we're, we're kind of a little unconventional. Alyssa is my sugar mama. She's the breadwinner. And I stay home, and I homeschool all four of my kids. Uh, and then, of course, I'm also a pastor. Uh, and I've been a worship pastor uh, off and on for the past 20 years, which makes you even older. So, and, um, but now uh, my wife and I, we're stepping, stepping into senior leadership. Um, we're planting a church in Smithville, Texas, uh, called New Narrative. So, and uh, believe it or not, right now our church meets in a bar, which is pretty interesting. Uh, I love people who hang out in bars, you know. Um, they need Jesus, all right? And all, what we found is most people um, that would never step foot in a church are so much more open to the gospel. Uh, they're just not open to church people, you know. So we see a lot of uh, um, a lot of warm welcome with uh, people just in the nightlife and stuff like that, and um, and actually the owner of the uh, place that we meet at, um, he actually just ex- opened up his home to our family to. Uh, he expressed that he wanted a deeper friendship with my wife and I, and opened up his home to uh, let us come out there and ride four wheelers and do all that stuff. And this dude is like very blunt. He's like, "I'm not religious," you know. But the other day he told me he's like, "You know, you've been meeting my bar for about a month now. Uh, I guess you're my pastor." <laughs> so, anyways, that's kind of a little bit of who I am. Uh, I wanted to, is it okay if we laugh a little bit more? So you're either going to really judge me, or um, you're going to think it's funny too. But I heard, uh, I heard a joke, um, <laughs> which I'm good with either. So <laughs> um, I heard a joke the other day. Um, this a family went to a wedding, and they had a young girl, and it was her very first wedding. She'd never been to a wedding before, and uh, she was just mesmerized by the beauty of the, the whole thing, the flowers and the music, and, you know, they're in this big cathedral, and there's tons of people there, and she was just, wow, you know, and uh, during the ceremony, she leaned over and tugged on her mom and said, mom, why is she wearing all white? And the mom leaned down. She was like, well, because this is the happiest day of her life. And um, so the, the ceremony went on. 
And uh, the little girl really puzzled, tugged on her mom's shirt again and said, Mom, then why is the groom wearing all black? (laughs) All right, one more. (laughs) I'm just going to seal this coffin right now. All right, so this little kid, um, he went to Sunday school, and that particular morning they were learning about Adam and Eve, right? And uh, they were learning about how God uh, put Adam in the deep sleep. Y'all, y'all know the story of Adam and Eve, right? And he took a rib out of Adam's side, and he created woman, right? And uh, the kid was just mesmerized by all the details of how God could do this. And um, he was asking his parents, well, did it hurt Adam? And parents were like, oh, I don't know, you know. Uh, well, a few days later, the son... The, the mother comes in to the living room, and the son is laying on his side, uh, screaming and writhing in pain. And she's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And he said, oh, I think I'm getting my wife. <laughs> All right. All righty. I've always dreamt of being a stand-up comedian, but I don't, I don't think I have much of a career in it. <laughs> So this morning I wanted to talk about um, God is our Father, right? Um, But I wanted to clarify something. Um, It's not that he's like a father, right? He is our Father. The Apostle John in 1 John, uh, I think 3, he says, we are actually the children of God. And we'll get to that in a second. But... um, the Bible does give metaphors or, you know, uh, uh, analogies of who we are to God and his relationship with us. Like, uh, we are the bride of Christ. But we're not literally the bride. We're not going to, like, form Voltron and, you know, become this giant, you know, female, you know, dressed in white. It's not going to be like that, right? Uh, but we're like a bride to Christ, Right? Um, we are not literally sheep, you know. When Jesus comes back, we're not going to all turn into woolly creatures, you know. Um, but the Bible calls us a flock, and he's the shepherd, right? So these are metaphors. But when the Bible talks about that we are the children of God, this is not figurative. This is literal, right? Um, We don't, no, I won't go there. There. So what that has to do with today is um, the way we view God affects how we relate to him, how we receive from him, and how we reflect him. Does that make sense? So I want to look at a few things today. Right, that um, they're they're kind of standards of the church, they're they're core doctrine. But if we have a tendency to look at God any other way than a loving Father, um, we may misunderstand what Scripture is actually saying, all right, or what the what the Father is actually trying to tell us. So I want to look at um, 
the idea that God is a judge. Okay? Um, I, I come from the belief that um, the best way to understand Scripture is to read more Scripture. Right? <laughs> like the Bible can interpret itself. And so often, if you take one verse and exalt it above everything else, you get off into some weird stuff. All right? So, for example, like God is love. Right? But if you don't look at the whole of Scripture and see how God is love, you might just take your own idea or a human idea of what love is and then apply that to God. Right? So... God is love, but the Bible defines love. Let me say it this way. God has defined love himself, right? So, Scripture teaches us that God is a judge, right? So, you know Jesus was Jewish, right? Okay. He, he was a Hebrew, all right? And in Hebraic culture... Um, there was an understanding of what a judge is. All right. And not just Jesus was Jewish, but all the original apostles all right, and his, his initial following in the three and a half years that he was physically walking the earth, they were all Jewish. They were all Hebrews. Okay? So when Jesus is talking, teaching, all right, he's coming from a Jewish perspective to Jewish listeners does that make sense? So in, in school, they refer to this as a cultural context. And not just that, Jesus was physically walking the earth during a specific time period, right? Uh, most uh, scholars and historians believe that he was born in, anywhere from 5 to 3 B.C., all right? Our, our Western calendar is a little weird, all right? But anywhere from 5 B.C. to 3 B.C., um, and so before these years zero, it, it's counting down, but now we're counting up, right? And he died somewhere around between 33 and 34 AD, right? Because Luke tells us that Jesus started his ministry when he was 30, right? And we know he had an earthly ministry of about three, three and a half years. So that's all important. To set the stage for, there is a specific context that scripture is written in. The original writers and the original readers understood things from a different perspective. Now, we today, 2020, in America, in small town Cedar Creek, in Texas, are over 2,000 years removed from a first century Jewish understanding, right? Not just Jewish, but Jews under the rule of imperial Rome at the time, okay? So when we hear something like God is a judge, we can't take our Western idea of judge and then apply that to scripture, right? The original writer would not have understood that, and the original reader would not have understood that, right? So what does the Bible mean by judge? Well, fortunately, we have this whole book in the Bible called Judges, right? So when the original readers or the original listeners 
of Jesus or the apostles, when they hear the word judge, they're understanding judge from a Hebraic understanding. So has anybody ever read the book of Judges? Not you, Phil. I know you have. (laughs) Dad, too. I know you have. So the whole book of Judges, all right, we're going to just read the whole book today. No, no, no. we're not going to do that. The whole book of Judges is story after story after story um, of God raising up a fatherly or motherly individual, and yes, there were women judges too, right, that led Israel, all right, but they acted as a deliverer, a healer, a savior, all right, and their main core message was to uh, reconcile Israel back to God or back to the covenant that they were under with God. Does that make sense? So when we see in the New Testament, right, in the letters from Paul or Peter, or James, when they talk about God being a judge, it was from that understanding. Not the, the guy who sits on that big throny looking thing with the gavel and the white wig and everything is right or wrong. You either committed a sin or you're either guilty or you're innocent. Does that make sense? That's not the understanding. A Hebraic judge, and what I'm saying, what I'm proposing today, the way in which we should view God as a judge is as a loving father who's interested in his children being reconciled back to him. Right? He wants to rescue you from sin and death and oppression in the world. He's not sitting there judging you the way a Western judge would judge you. To add to that, in, during that time when the book of Judges was written, all right, and actually within the first century too, within Hebraic culture, um, they didn't so much have a right-wrong type culture. right? It was... It was more of an honor-shame type thing. So if you did something that broke the law, uh, say Torah, right, the, the law of Moses, um, it wasn't just a matter of you did something wrong. It was a matter of you brought shame to yourself, to God, to your family. That was the thing they were most concerned with. I, I want to look at something. Can we turn to uh, John Three, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 18. Does anybody like to watch The Office? You know, the TV show, The Office? It's okay. I'm not your pastor. You can, you can tell me. Does anybody like to do that? You do, don't you? You like the off? No, you like Parks and Rec. You don't. Oh, do you don't. Do you like awkward humor at all? Oh, you don't watch TV. Oh, okay. I guess I'm the only sinner. <laughs> what was that? You watch Netflix? Oh, okay, okay. What's on Netflix? You check it out. I love awkward humor. I love that awkward feeling that you find in just the silence of saying something so weird. You know, and then watching faces as they squirm. Yeah, well, I think it's probably because I grew up with him that I'm used to feeling awkward and I just got comfortable with it. So, so sometimes when I'm teaching, I like to, 
I like to kind of create an awkward moment and then just walk away from it. All right, now I'll let y'all, I'll let you guys deal with that later, okay? <laughs> so I'm going to throw, the, yeah, there we go. <laughs> so I'm going to throw this statement out here. God is not judging you. Now for some people, that's hard to wrap your mind around, right? But God is not judging you. Okay, and we're going to look at three verses that back this up. All right, so John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, he who does not believe has been judged already. All right? So that's a past tense thing. It's not this ongoing thing. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. All right? Another one. And then I'll bring it all together. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. I have a hair floating off my bald head. It's bothering me. Did somebody say it was a sprout? (laughs) Jesus, please, heal it. (laughs) All right, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment... And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So that all will honor the Son, even as the Father, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father, Father who sent him. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. All right, next one. John 16, verse 7 through 11. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. All right, this is in the context of Jesus is telling his uh, apostles, right, that he's about to leave. He's about to go to the cross, and they're kind of not getting it, right? Um. But he's also, right here, he's promising the Holy Spirit. Right? He's like, it's actually a good thing that I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And this is what he's saying. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if, you, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Okay, And then he explains, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Right? So for those who believe in Jesus, you are under no judgment whatsoever. Does that make sense? The Father is not judging you. 
The Son is not judging you, and the Holy Spirit is not judging you. Right? A lot of times in the church, we've put this emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of your sin. But Jesus said the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict those who don't believe of their sin. Right? So we sit here as believers in Jesus, judgment-free. 100% judgment-free. We have been saved. We have been healed. We have been delivered by our loving Father who is judge of the world. He's reconciling his children back to him. Okay. Um, I will not read all of this, but Romans chapter 2 Verses 1 through 10. A lot of teachers that are really into like the wrath message, they're like so obsessed with the wrath of God. Um, they talk about like, well, that hurricane is the wrath of God. God's judging the gays and the lesbians and all that stuff, right? Um, and they're obsessed with God's wrath. Um, but Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, um, if you read it carefully... Wrath is not something that God is ongoingly pouring out. It's something that an individual can be storing up for himself one day when Jesus comes back. Right? So Romans chapter 2, through, uh, chapter two verses 1 through 10, talk about that. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to move on, though. So... Let's take this back into, uh, like, this morning, did y'all catch the theme? I don't know if it was intentional, but the most, most of your songs talked about the cross this morning, talked about what Jesus did on the cross, and um, depending on where you're from, how you grew up, what kind of churches you've been involved in... Um, For better or for worse, small towns have a tendency to um, all kind of teach the same things, right? So whenever I left Bastrop and I got to travel the world a little bit and I got to live in other towns a little bit, I realized people don't think the same way I do, which is so irritating, but they don't. But now I've learned to love that, right? Because what we tend to... It's something called embedded thinking, and you get this like growing up around the same type of people, um, the, the, your close family, your friends. You all tend to naturally begin to think and believe the same thing, all right? Um, but growth happens whenever you take those things that are kind of embedded, right, and you question them. Maybe you don't necessarily give them up, all right, but if you're going to be honest and you... If you're really pursuing growth, growth requires change, all right? And for change to occur, you have to leave one thing for another thing sometimes, right? So a lot of what's taught in kind of the Southern Bible Belt is just certain views that we all have always... Well, that's the truth. That's what I've always been taught, all right? But there's actually many views. And so we're talking about the cross right now, okay? Um, what 
did Jesus do on the cross? The theological term is the atonement, right? Um, what was Jesus doing through the atonement? Why? What is the why? What's the so what, right? When I was in the army, I had a commander. Anytime I'd brief him, he would like interrupt me and be like, I just need the so what, all right? So that's, that's always stuck with me. Um, what is the so what of the atonement, all right? Well, did you know there's actually several views of that, right? Some, one view is called uh, the penal substitutionary view, right? Or uh, uh, I think it's also called the uh, satisfaction view or satisfactory view, something like that. And it says that God is a judge, all right, and must punish sin because he's a righteous judge and he's a just judge, right? And if it's wrong, the role of a judge is to convict and to punish, all right? Well, because the world sinned and fell away from him, we're guilty, right? So he must punish us. But Jesus saved us from that punishment, right? This is called a penal substitutionary view. Um, and I'm not even going to pretend to agree with this. Um, I'm just going to throw it out there. It, it's not consistent with the understanding of God as a judge, right? God is a savior and a deliverer, and God's justice is always tied to compassion, mercy, grace. Does that make sense? And let me say it this way. God doesn't have to punish sin. God can forgive sin. We have three uh, strong examples of atonement in the Bible, right? Uh, we have uh, the Passover, right? When the, when the Jews were captive in Israel and God was performing all the signs and wonders and miracles. And one of those was they were to take the lamb, slaughter the lamb, and paint the doorpost with the blood. And the spirit of death passed over every house who had blood applied to it, right? Um, this isn't a picture of God punishing anyone. They weren't told to beat the crap out of the lamb, you know, and ridicule it and pull its hair out and all that stuff. What happened to Jesus, right? It was, it was God uh, gave them something. This blood was shed for the salvation of Israel. Okay, uh, another one is Isaac and Abraham, all right? This is a picture of the atonement as well. Um, I, does everybody know the story of Abraham? God promised Abraham a son, but Abraham was like ancient. And uh, he was like, I don't know that's how that's going to work. And even Sarah, his wife, who was what, 90? 90? Laughed about it a little bit, kind of in disbelief. Um, Abraham finally gets Isaac, and God says... I want you to take him up there, build an altar, and sacrifice him. And uh, so Abraham, in Hebrews, it talks about Abraham believed that um, God could even uh, raise him from the dead. Was it in Hebrews? Yeah, Hebrews. So Abraham, he was fully intending on taking Isaac up there and slitting his throat. But he did not ridicule Isaac. He did not punish Isaac. It was, punishment had nothing to do with it. Does that make sense? All right. And so 
takes him up there, and right as Abraham is about to do it, what does God do? Shout it out. <laughs> there you go. Stop, please. <laughs> An angel of the Lord uh, appeared to Abraham and said, stop it. Don't do it. And actually, it was a beautiful picture of God showing Abraham, um, which, by the way, Abraham grew up in paganism, right? I'll just drop that there. You can research it yourself. All right, he talks about his dad worshipped other gods, all right? So Abraham was used to child sacrifice and, you know, human sacrifice and stuff like that that was very common of the ancient Near East, right? But God was showing Abraham, no, I'm going to do something different. I'm not that kind of God, right? And so he provided a ram that was caught in the bushes, right? Uh, and then the, the third uh, view of the atonement uh, is with the temple system, right? With Moses, uh, they built the temple, and there was the the priests and everything, and they would have to sacrifice bulls and goats and all kinds of things, right? Well, once a year, um, they had to do this huge sacrifice, and uh, in the, the Jewish festival is called Yom Kippur, right? It's the Day of Atonement. Um, in that, they take two goats, right? The book of Hebrews in chapter 8, 9, and 10 describe this, right? They, they take these two goats, all right? Uh, one is called uh, the atoning lamb, all right? And one is called the scapegoat, right? I'm not going to go through all of it for the sake of time, but essentially, um, the priest um, sacrifices the one, takes the blood of that, sprinkles it on the other goat, and then they set that goat free, in the wild, and that was supposed to symbolize sin being let out of uh, the nation of Israel, sin being uh, uh, taken away, right? Nowhere in there is God punishing anything. Does that make sense? All right, it was for the forgiveness of sins. It was from, it was all about being released from sins, all right? So why did I take forever to go through that? If we understand God as a loving Father, and Jesus came to reveal the Father, right? And actually, the only way that Jesus talks about the Father is calling him Father, right? When Jesus died on the cross, when he atoned for the sins of humanity, it had nothing to do with him rescuing us from the mean God who needs to punish us because we did something wrong. It had everything to do with Jesus rescuing us from sin and death in the world. That So sin and death was the oppressor, right? God was not, we weren't running from God's punishment, all right? Maybe one day, if I ever get an invite back, I can expound upon this more, all right? And we actually lay out scripture for this. But in the Bible Belt, a lot of us are taught this. And I'm a history buff. Where we get this um, is not from like the the early early church. It actually shows up in the scene during the Reformation. All right, John Calvin is the one who really kind of put all this together in a, a really organized, systematic way. And Calvin was a lawyer. 
big surprise. All right. So in his lawyer's mind, when he hears judge, you know, he, he has to he has to reconcile that with that. And there was so much during that time that he just didn't have. They hadn't even found the Dead Sea Scrolls yet. And during that time of the Reformation, um, culture as a whole was still pretty anti-Semitic. Right. They saw the Jews as the murderer of Jesus. Um, and Luther in his later later Martin Luther was one of the uh, reformers. I mean, he's like the guy that started it, right? Um, he, in his later years, wrote some nasty, nasty things about the Jews. Um, but in his zeal for the Lord. Okay, so let's turn to Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. All right? And this is what all of heaven is saying Jesus did on the cross. Right? And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. They're talking about Jesus. For you were slain. This is the so what? For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So what Jesus did on the cross had nothing to do with punishing sin in humanity, but actually delivering humanity out of his love as a loving father, delivering humanity from the oppression of sin and death because of sin, right? Okay. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, it says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So God wasn't punishing Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus wasn't saving us from God's punishment. Does that make sense? All right. All right, now I said there was three things that if we didn't view God correctly as a loving father, uh, then it, it affects the way we relate to him, it affects the way we receive from him, and it affects the way we reflect him, right? How am I on time? What, what time do you all normally get out of here? Okay, 15 minutes. I can do this in 15 minutes. I'll just knock out the other 16 pages. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> okay. Let me just pick what I want to say here. Okay, let's look at how we receive from him. All right, and then we'll talk about how we reflect him to the world. All right, and then how we relate to him. And I want to end on uh, something that we're all really familiar with. All right, so how we receive for him. Let's turn to John 14, verses 12 through 15. 
And while you're turning there, I, w- I want to kind of put a period on what I was saying about the atonement. And this all ties together at the end, by the way. Um, the view that I believe is most biblical is what's called the covenantal view of the atonement. Meaning, why did Jesus die? What's the so what? He cut a new covenant with the Father. All right? And then all who believe in him are reconciled back to the Father and get to join in this covenant. All right? And the whole book of Hebrews is about this. This covenant between Jesus and the Father is so much better. That's the theme through the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better, he's better, he's better. And this covenant that he cut with the Father is better. Why? Because Jesus is God, all right? He's eternal. He's righteous. He's pure. He's holy. And because this, he's the mediator of a new and better covenant, right? It can't be broken, ever. This is why it's an eternal covenant, right? Uh, Man, I don't remember where it was. But in the Old Testament, it was referred to as the covenant of salt, right? When they were prophesying about the new covenant to come, right? And salt back then was overwhelmingly understood as not a flavor enhancer, but a uh, preservative. Salt prevented death and decay, all right? So this new and better covenant that Jesus has offered to us... um, That was the reason for his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his now reign from the throne, right? And we get to partake in that. All right, so period. How we receive from God. John 14, 12 through 15. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the words that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. All right, now I'm just going to read this out. You don't have to necessarily go there. It's 1 John 5, verses 13 through 15. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, by the way. Um, So Jesus said, anything we ask in his name, he'll give us, right? And then uh, the Apostle John in 1 John says, anything we ask according to his will, we'll get, right? So we have to understand what is in his name and what is in his will. Now, if we understand that God is a loving father who desired to have sons and daughters... Therefore, he created all of humanity. God's will is to have children. So what I'm proposing is what John is talking about in 1 John 5 is the will of God isn't um, the do's and don'ts of God. All right? Should you have a Cadillac or should you have uh, the latest and greatest fill in the blank? 
right? It's not whether we should have a whole lot of people in our church or should we just be meeting in home churches. It's not should I go to Russia or should I go here and do this or do that? Should I be an engineer or should I be a pastor, right? That's not what he's talking about. The will of the Father was to have children. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says that in love, God predetermined to have children. It says from the foundations of the world, God predetermined to have children. Does that make sense? God didn't create us to be worshipers. He didn't create us to be servants, slaves. God created us to be his children. Does that make sense? The reason why he created the heavens and the earth and everything within it was to have children, right? The story of creation is not a scientific report. It's actually the story of a father getting what he wants. He created everything to have a home for his children. So when we ask in his name, it's his name. So like, if I pull out my driver's license, uh, my name is Joshua Hickman, right? Hickman is my family name. When Jesus said, ask anything in my name, he's talking about this family name. Asking as a son, as a daughter, Asking as a child of God. And we're going to capitalize that in just a second. All right. How we reflect him. And I'm not going to get into everything because I do want to um, wrap this up soon. When we talk about evangelism or sharing the gospel or reflecting Jesus to the rest of the world. Right. If we're reflecting anything other than a loving father who's determined to have children and even gave his life so that he could have all of his children, right? We're not reflecting the God of Scripture. We're not reflecting, right? We're reflecting some other misconstrued idea, all right? Luke 15, Jesus talks about, let me say this. In Luke chapter 15, um, at the very beginning, Jesus is sitting down with some sinners, right? Uh, Some bar people, Right, <laughs> drunks and prostitutes, and you know the the uglies and the unwanteds, the weirdos, right? And the Pharisees and scribes come up, and they start grumbling, and they say, "If they, if he just knew what kind of sinners they were." Well, and Jesus, knowing what they were saying, he said, "This is what I think sin is. This is what the Father thinks sin is." And then he goes into three parables, right? The lost sheep the lost coin, and the mistitled parable that's usually called the prodigal son. But really, it should be titled, if we're going to be consistent, the lost son, right? I wanted to get a little bit into it, um, but I think Dad is really digging into this right now, and maybe you can teach on the the lost son soon. (laughs) Parables are not metaphors. Parables are not analogies. All right? it's, it's not even like prophetic writing where you can take every little symbol from it and make it mean something. A parable is um, it's a story. It's a narrative. And the, the overall meaning of this parable, the story, 
is what the teaching is about, okay? So when Jesus is teaching parables, all right, um, we shouldn't look at each little detail and figure out, oh, well, the ring meant this and the robe meant this. No, that's, that's not what the original speaker, Jesus, and the original listener, first century Jews, would have understood, right? So when Jesus describes this, this appalling story of this son who goes to his father and says, give me what I want, all right? In that culture, it was the equivalent of me going to my dad and said, I hate you. Give me your money, and I'm going to leave. That's what it was. That's what the son was actually saying to the father, all right? Now, in that culture, what the father would have done, what, and this is like uh, Semitic culture as a whole, rather Jew or Arabic, um, the father would have taken his right hand and pop, right across the face, beaten the son, and the family would have taken the son out to the edges of the city and left him there for the son to repent. And if the son repented, he would have done so publicly, and the father would have let him come back in and probably serve at a lowly um, like, like a servant or you know, something like that. And maybe if he was a really benevolent father, let him earn his way back into his good graces. But what Jesus describes, what the Pharisees and the people sitting around would have expected, um, he describes something totally different. And everything throughout this story is the father responding in a different way than what culture would have demanded. All right? This is what God thinks of sin. When someone does us wrong, we meet them in an undignified, loving way. This is reflecting the Father, right? The Father is undignified in his love for us, right? We don't demand that people clean themselves up before we reach out and we hug them and kiss them and befriend them, right? Does anybody come from the Catholic Church? Okay, yeah. All right. So I don't, I don't want to, I don't know where y'all stand. All right. I, and I'm not, I, I think there's a lot of good that has come from the Catholic Church. Okay. I think there's some stuff that maybe, period. I'll leave it there. Okay. Um, but one, they're, they're for, cent, for millennium, uh, their way of uh, evangelism was you culturalize first and then you evangelize second. So when the Catholic Church was spreading, right, uh, if a certain people group um, didn't uh, read or write, they wouldn't even go in there. Does that make sense? Meaning if they weren't close enough to Roman culture or Western culture, they wouldn't touch those people until they civilized a little bit more, right? That was kind of the, the Roman way, right? And that's why Rome spread so rapidly is because when the Roman Empire, you know, before Christianity kind of took over the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman Empire, they would go in and they would just like consume an area and they would totally culturalize it. They would make it look like little Rome, all right? And everywhere Rome went, they would do this. And just like, like locusts, you know. 
So um, that was kind of like the, the Catholic way or the Western way was you culturalize first. Um, but there's uh, these huge mission movements. Uh, for example, Patrick of Ireland. Uh, there was a 50-something tribes in uh, the Celtic area, Ireland and um, Scotland and Wales and Britain and all that. Uh, there was 50-something tribes, and during uh, Patrick's day, he won over 40 of those tribes to the Lord, meaning entire tribes, entire families, entire cities bowing their heads and their hearts to Jesus because he befriended them first and all the other stuff came later. later. Scripturally, Paul says this in Romans, that it's the kindness of the Lord that draws us to repentance. Right? And that word draw, it literally means a violent pulling in. Right? It's the kindness of the Lord that draws us to repentance. Like, even while we were sinners, Jesus demonstrated his love for us. Okay? So that's, that's the point of, that's how we reflect the Father. Right? All right, so I'm going to end on this. Um, how we relate to him. I've already laid... I've already laid the case for God as a loving father. This should be the center of how we perceive God. Everybody has filters, all right? Filters aren't necessarily bad unless your filter is bad, all right? If, if your filter has a little dirt on it, you know, it's hard to see things, right? I'm saying that the filter that we should have when we approach Scripture, when we approach people, when we approach our, our relationship with Father God is that he's a loving father who actually wants us. He's not sitting there constantly judging us. Are you doing this right or this wrong? Does that make sense? That's religion, right? That's, I'll leave that. All right, so Matthew 6, verses 8 through 13. Everybody knows um, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, how do we pray, right? And Jesus said, uh, so don't be like them, talking about the Pharisees, for your father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then this way. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's powerful. Um, This is a child's prayer. Jesus could have started out his prayer the way a lot of Jewish prayers, customary prayers start. Blessed, O Lord, art thou God of the universe. He did not start it out that way. That's how typical Jewish prayer starts out. He started out, our Father. He did not start out, oh, my Father, who is in heaven, you are holy. No, he started out, our Father. Does that make sense? It's this family, this is, you can call him Father as well. And he wants you to call him Father. Okay? So, but that's actually a Greek translation. The later manuscripts of Matthew were written in Koine Greek. The earliest manuscripts, right, the earliest writings were actually written in Aramaic. 
And when you translate, and this, you can look this up on, online, when you translate this from the Aramaic, and this is what I want to close on, um, it's very, very uh, relevant that this is a child's prayer. This is approaching the Father in the name of Jesus. This is asking according to his will. If, if we can let this sink from our head into our heart so that, remember Proverbs says that out of the heart flow all issues of life, all right? The things that are in our heart are what we manifest to the world, all right? We'll relate to God better, we'll receive from him better, and we will reflect him a lot better if we understand this, okay? This is the Arama- Aramaic. Beloved daddy, who fills all realms, may you be honored in me. Let your divine rule come now. Let your will come true in all the universe, in the heavens and the earth. You give us all that we need for each day and untangle the knots of unforgiveness that bind us within. As we also let go of the guilt of others. Let us not be lost in superficial things, but let us be free from that what keeps us from our true purpose. From you comes all rule, the strength to act, and the song that beautifies all from age to age. Amen. I'll get you a copy of that. I think that is beautiful. I think that is a great place to close. So God is a loving father who desired to have children. The way he wants you to approach him is as a child dearly loved, right? Not as a suffering servant, right? Not as, a, a, as a, just a mere worshiper. It's a lot closer. You can call him daddy. You can call him father. So thank you again for letting me ramble for the last hour and a half. I really appreciate it. Okay. Do you want to close? Yes. Yeah. Praise God. Well, did you get something? Yes. I'm going to go ahead and take up offering now. And so I'll just I'll just play so so if you if you feel that, you know how we Paul said, 